There were uh, three proposers. All of them were for concessions. Tonight on the KRBD Evening Report. Ketchikan City officials reveal some details of proposals to revamp Ketchikan's cruise ship docks. Lawmakers consider a bill that would dial back Pioneer Home rate hikes. And KTOO's Matt Miller tags along with a heli-ski guide to assess avalanche conditions in Juneau. All that and more coming up. First, let's take a look at the weather. We've got another high wind warning in effect, this one from 3 a.m. Thursday to 9 a.m. Thursday. Tonight, we'll see rain that may be heavy at times, lows around 40, southeast winds to 40 miles an hour, gusting to around 60 miles an hour. Thursday, rain that may be heavy at times, highs in the mid-40s, and some more stiff winds, south winds to 40 with gusts to around 60. Thursday night, widespread rain showers and scattered snow showers with no accumulation. Lows in the mid-30s, south winds to 25 miles an hour. Friday, rain showers are likely, highs around 40, south winds to 15 miles an hour. And Friday night, snow and rain showers are likely, lows in the mid-30s, south winds to 10 miles an hour. You're listening to the KRBD Evening Report. I'm your host, Eric Stone. City council members got their first look at three proposals to revamp Ketchikan city-owned cruise ship docks Tuesday evening. Though officials released some details, there's still a lot that remains out of the public view. After the council emerged from a two-hour closed-door meeting, Ketchikan City Mayor Bob Siebertson shared some details on the firm seeking to manage the downtown cruise docks. There were uh, three proposers. All of them were for concessions. That is, all three proposals came from companies that would like to take over management of the docks, ship scheduling, dock operations, things like that. The city is pursuing a public-private partnership to finance dock improvements and infrastructure upgrades. City officials say the port needs an overhaul to handle an ever-increasing volume of tourists coming on ever-larger ships. The three proposals come from port operating companies. Global Ports Holding, a UK-based cruise port operator owned largely by a Turkish investment firm, partnered with Pennsylvania-based consulting firm Conrad Solutions to submit its bid under the name Ketchikan Port Solutions. Seattle-based SSA Marine worked with cruise line Royal Caribbean in a partnership they're calling Ketchikan Waterfront Partners. Sievertson says Ketchikan-based Survey Point Holdings submitted its bid without a partner. However, both SSA Marine and Survey Point are owned in part by the same parent company, Carrick's Incorporated. The exact nature of the partnerships remains unknown. State corporate records provide little information beyond the mayor's statement. City attorney Mitch Seaver also provided some clarity on when the public would be able to examine the full proposals. Proposals, tabulation, and evaluations thereof shall be open to public inspection only after the issuance of a notice of intent to award. So the public won't see the full bids until the city council decides on its best option. Seaver said disclosing the contents of the proposals prematurely could compromise the city's ability to negotiate with the three bidders. Council member Sam Bergeron said he was interested in seeing how the proposals compare to the status quo. I think that uh, when, when the city council evaluates the RFP from three separate entities, we should also include ourselves. City Mayor Sievertson said in a Wednesday phone interview that the council hadn't given city management any direction either during or after the closed-door session. Well, the council members uh, have to get through this information, digest it, and make a comparative estimate. As the process continues, council members will score the bids against several criteria. Those include the amount paid to the city, the company's experience managing projects of this nature, and the company's commitment to meeting environmental standards. Sievertson said the city won't take any other action on the proposals until the council's February 17th meeting. 
Lawmakers heard testimony from those affected by Pioneer Home rate increases in a Monday hearing. They're considering a bill that would partially reverse rate increases that went into effect last year. Last September, residents at the six Pioneer homes across Alaska saw their rates jump between 40 and 140 percent. That's left some seniors in dire financial straits. Juneau resident Brad Ryder says his mother's rate more than doubled. Directly after it went into effect, my mother's rate went from just over $4,000, it went up to over $11,000, almost overnight. Ryder, his parents, and a resident of Ketchikan's Pioneer Home are plaintiffs in a lawsuit that seeks to reverse the rate increases. The state has justified the new rates by arguing that they're bringing fees in line with the cost of caring for Alaska's elders. Pioneer homes charge residents based on the level of care that they need. In September, the lowest paying residents saw their rates jump by about $1,000. But rates for some residents requiring more intense care jumped by more than 6000 Legislators have been weighing in. At a recent Senate hearing, Anchorage Democratic Representative Zach Fields pushed a bill that would dial back the rate increases. There are three goals of House Bill 96, maintain the Pioneer Homes and Alaska's historic commitment to our elders, provide revenue and financial stability for the homes, and provide some certainty and predictability to both residents and the department about the trajectory of rates in the future. Rates under Fields' bill would still be higher than they were before last year's hike, but the increases would be less dramatic. Residents requiring the most intense care would see increases of less than $2,000. Lower-level residents' rates would only rise by a little more than $400. Ryder pushed the committee to advance the bill. He asked the legislature to support both the homes and the elders that live there. We should be holding it up for the rest of the country to look at. Those guys are great, and the people in there are great. The bill passed the Alaska House 35-4 to 4 during the last legislative session. Senate President Kathy Giesel and Senate Minority Leader Tom Begich have signed on as sponsors in the Senate. But even if passed by lawmakers, it could face the governor's veto. In the meantime, there is financial assistance for those who can't afford the higher rates. But in many cases, residents are forced to sell most of their properties and belongings, or even get a divorce to untangle their assets. Reporting in Ketchikan, I'm Eric Stone. An environmental group doesn't think it's fair that federal money was given to a timber industry group to assess trees that could be suitable for helicopter logging in the Tongass National Forest. Documents obtained by Earth Justice show a contract between the State Division of Forestry and the Alaska Forest Association worth up to $1.3 million. Olivia Glasscock, an associate attorney with Earth Justice, says it's like paying an industry group to pick the trees it wants to harvest. I think it really just highlights the imbalance in how the public is getting to participate in these planning and management processes and how the industry is getting to participate in it. But Chris Mesh, the director of the Alaska Division of Forestry, says that's not the case. He helped oversee the contract. The Forest Service first granted the money to the state. He says both the Forest Service and the state are trying to gain more experience in selecting marketable trees. Recently, Southeast Alaska's only helicopter logging contractor stopped doing business. Mesh would like to see another company come online. And he says there needs to be a new generation of foresters who know how to facilitate that work. It makes sense that the Alaska Forest Association, or AFA, would be helping with that. The group has been around for a long time. I wouldn't agree that it's uh, AFA picking the trees. It's actually a training process to identify the criteria that makes a tree economic and then can be safely uh, flown out. 
The location of some of this training has been hotly debated because it's happening on land slated for a controversial timber sale. Prince of Wales Island could be the location of the largest federal timber sale in Alaska in more than a decade, but the plans are being litigated in federal district court. The plaintiffs, including Earth Justice, say the Forest Service hasn't provided a detailed map of the areas that could be logged, which makes it impossible for the public to weigh in on their environmental impact. Earth Justice says it would like the Forest Service to end this grant, quote, immediately, unquote. Already this winter, at least seven people have been reported caught in avalanches around Alaska. Of those, two people were killed near Haines just before New Year's Eve. What about avalanche conditions in the Juneau area right now? KTOO's Matt Miller went out with a heli-ski guide to find out. Ed Shanley takes a portable shovel out of his backpack and digs into the season's snowpack. A big rectangular pit starts taking shape. It's almost three feet deep with perfectly straight vertical sides. Shanley says you shouldn't use this kind of test to justify doing something risky. You should always be kind of trying to find instability is kind of the mindset that I take. That's why Shanley may dig as many as 10 snow pits each day. Shanley is a part-time avalanche technician for a utility company, but his main winter gig is as a guide for a local heliskiing company. And I went out with him recently to find out what he does before taking clients out. When he's done digging and shoveling snow, he points out the different layers, like a geologist who uses a fossil record to determine the age of rock going back in time. Reading each deeper snow layer tells a story about the winter, starting with the top five inches. Because we have so little snow, you can see there's new snow that we just got. There's a little bit of a crust here, which is, I think, what was left over from the wind. Mid-January's high winds and cold snap compacted the snow into an inch-and-a-half heavy hard layer. Underneath that, six inches of coarse snow that comes apart very easily in Shanley's hand. And it's turning into these kind of weak, sugary, faceted snow crystals. So that's like not a very good setup. You don't have a huge amount of load on it or anything, and if you were to have an avalanche, it'd be pretty shallow. That snow layer is the weakest. Below that, two feet of December's frozen rain and ice all the way down to the soil. With a handsaw, Shanley cuts a long block along the edge of the pit, but he leaves the block in place. He gently sets the blade of the shovel flat on top and then taps it with his finger repeatedly. see a little bit of movement here. I almost didn't notice it, but eventually the weak snow layer collapses very slightly. The top two layers of the block shear or shift a tiny fraction of an inch down and out. That's the instability that Shane Lee was looking for that could start an avalanche. If we were on a steeper location, that would have probably fallen into the pit. At the time, Shanley says it wasn't a great snowpack, not horrible either. But after the past week's weather, more snow, rain, and higher temperatures. He said the avalanche hazard was trending higher, but warmer temperatures could break down some of those layers and actually help long-term stability. What if you come down out of the mountains and into downtown Juneau? We were seeing some small avalanches around the region and wet loose avalanches. Tom Matisse, urban avalanche forecaster for the city and borough of Juneau, says there's always more danger of an avalanche with additional snow and rain. That weak layer still exists, but so far he says the snowpack is still fairly thin. 
the dangers are not incredibly high right now in the backcountry in the areas down low as you're hiking along Perseverance Trail, as you're hiking along the Flume Trail. There's some concern, but it takes huge avalanches to get down to there. Where are avalanches likely to start? Shanley tells me any slope over 30 degrees, under a rounded outcropping, or near a cornice. When? Well, right after high winds, a big rainfall or snowstorm, or during big changes in temperature. Shanley says keep an eye out for warning signs like big cracks in the snow or a hollow drum sound on hard snow or the telltale woof. Reporting in Juneau, I'm Matt Miller. That's it for tonight's KRBD Evening Report. You can get this show as a podcast on your favorite podcast app, whatever that may be. You can also find us on your smart speaker, like an Amazon Echo or Google Home. Just ask it to play the KRBD Evening Report. You can also just ask it to play the station, KRBD. Thanks so much for listening. I'm your host, Eric Stone.